Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. In James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 through verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We're going to stop at that point. And we understand that James, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, moved from the tongue to wisdom, which is from above. And one thing we didn't really get to spend much time on last week, and I just alluded to it, because what I wanted us to see was our tongue leads us astray so many times, gets us in trouble, and... In our flesh, there's nothing that we can do. But God is able. God is able to watch over. God is able to do something that we are not able. So what's impossible for man is not impossible for God. God can take that old broken nature and make it new. He gives us a new, makes us a new creation. Isn't that wonderful? Now he gets to the root of the problem here in James, because here the root of the problem is where our heart is, where our mind is based. And we can't be working from the Spirit of God and have two opposites within our mouth. That's where James ended up. We can't be both sweet and bitter water. We can't have good fruit and bad fruit. So it has to be in line. That's why we pick up now, who is wise and understanding among you? Remember, James was writing to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad, to those Christians, but they were Jews. And he writes in a very typical Jewish fashion. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, you have the opening of God in creation. And Genesis chapter 1 closes with God creating man and woman. Then you pick up in Genesis chapter 2, and you have how God created Adam and Eve. And so that's the Jewish way of thought, is it opens up a subject, and then it will come back and look at it and expand upon a particular part. Well, that's what James has been doing here. He's writing in a very Jewish perspective because he already talked about, remember in chapter 1, verse 26, if a man cannot bridle his tongue, in chapter 3, now he has expanded on that about the tongue. And also in chapter 1, verse 5, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So he opened the subject in chapter 1, and now in chapter 3, it's being expanded. We're seeing more, we're understanding it in a greater depth. So now, 
True wisdom is the essence and the evidence of our salvation. We talked about how you handle temptation, how you handle trials, how you handle people in need, how you handle the Word of God, how you handle your tongue. All of those were tests of a living faith. And that's what he's talking about again. So here's another one. The kind of wisdom that characterizes us. That type of wisdom that now is going to show us who we're about. So you see that when the wisdom of God comes into a life, it dominates the soul. It transforms that life. And so that now the lifestyle, that whole, all of the specific deeds, all of the attitudes are changed. And that's really what James is getting at in our passage here. So James says, if you have true wisdom, it's going to show in your lifestyle. It's going to show in your deeds, in your attitude, that attitude of humility. The essence of the scriptures that we're looking at today, between wisdom which is from above, that's mentioned in verse 17. What did it say there? But the wisdom which is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And then he's contrasting that with what we saw in verse 15. The world, the wisdom of this world, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. So he's comparing those two, that which is earthly, natural, or sensual, demonic, and that which is from above. James is saying exactly what the Old Testament tells us in those books of wisdom, that literature of wisdom, the wisdom that is in the world is divided into two kinds, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. It's a very familiar passage, very familiar to Old Testament saints, very familiar. Men might say that they possess wisdom. So then we ask the next question. James says it right here. Is it the wisdom of men or is it the wisdom of God? Because there is a real difference, tremendous difference. In fact, that's why in verse 13, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So if you say that you have wisdom, if you claim to have, you have wisdom, and you claim that that wisdom is the wisdom from above... Now the burden of proof is on you. Now the burden of proof is in your life. We have to verify it. We have to show that we possess a wisdom which is from above. Wisdom is a, is a magnificent word. I hope that we really get an understanding of what it means today. I hope that as we walk away, we can say, man, I got it. I understand that. Because... When we come to an understanding of what the Bible has to say about wisdom, it will help us in real practical aspects. The Greek philosophers spoke a lot about wisdom. The Greek word is Sophia. It meant, you know, great things. And I found one passage that was written 52 BC by the Greek philosopher Cicero. And he says, wisdom is the best gift of the gods. It is the mother of all good things. It is the best and that which generates all of the best. 
So that's what the Greek philosophers, that's what they thought. That kind of sums up a lot of that Greek philosophy and, and so many of the divines of history way back. They felt that wisdom, if you could get anything you wanted to get wisdom, if you could have anything, that would help you in every area of your life. And that is very true in this day and age. People are running after all sorts of other things. We're going to examine that. But if you could get anything, the wisdom is the chief pursuit of man. And that fits scripture, doesn't it? Proverbs 4 and 7 says, acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Seek after. Seek after is for gold and silver, the precious things. You remember the story of Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3? You remember that he was in Gibeah. In verse 5, it says, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be wonderful <laughs> for the Lord to come in a dream and say, What do you want? Ask me anything, and I'll give it to you. So that's the question. Whatever you want, just ask. Then Solomon said, Thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David, my father, according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee. And thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David, Yet I am a child. I do not know how to go in or come out. And here's where he's saying, I'm young, I'm inexperienced. I don't know all that I need. And yet they've placed me as the king. He goes on, he says, And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So what he's saying is, I already have so much. I have all of these things. I have all the possessions. I have all the honor. I have the rank. I have the authority, the power, all that a man could have. And what would I ask for? He says in verse 9, So give thy servant an understanding heart, to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? Verse 10 said, It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked for life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I also have given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. This wonderful dream that he has, a dream that's got such a great reality with it. God came to Solomon, Solomon asked for wisdom, and God wonderfully blessed bestows on this man such wisdom that now he is able, and you know what, it goes on in 1 Kings 4, 29, 
This is a little more testimony. It says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all of the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ephrazite, and Heman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men came from all the peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Again, in chapter 5 and 12, it says, The Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised. I read all of that so we could see that there is a wisdom that surpasses human wisdom. And haven't we all in human history, all of us, gone back to read some of Solomon's wisdom? Have you read through some of the Psalms of Solomon? The Proverbs that were written by Solomon? And we're going to talk a little bit about Ecclesiastes. How in all of these, the books of wisdom, that's what the Jews call them, what we call the books of Psalms, the books of wisdom. Solomon received this great wisdom and much helped him in related to the ruling of this world. It relates much to what he had to deal with. And much of what he wrote had a very practical aspect in deciding what to do with reference to problems so that he could bring justice in the land and in the community that he ruled. But I think in raising children, especially in this day and age, and I know from the time our children were young, we wanted them to be wise. You want your children to be wise. Maybe your children, your grandchildren. It isn't just a question of knowledge. It's a question of having the proper application so they have the information that they need, but they know how to properly apply. That's what wisdom is. That's what we want. We want them not just to have knowledge, not just the information, but we want them to apply it properly. So God in the Bible, he calls all men to wisdom, to be wise. And as believers, what are we said? We are to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves, or harmless as doves, right? As gentle. So we've got to have something about us, a very characteristic that is different from the world. We'd all like to claim that we have wisdom. We'd all like to say, I have great discernment. But James now asks this question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him prove it by his conduct, his good behavior. Wisdom then, from James' viewpoint, is made manifest by the way the person conducts his or her life. It's going to be shown. So how you live will show whether or not we have really true wisdom. So James asks that question, and he even gives the answer. If you're claiming you have wisdom, then it's going to be made manifest in your life. Think about that with Solomon. 
Solomon, when he writes Ecclesiastes, he talks about that he did not hold anything back from that he saw. He had a thousand women. He talked about all of the wine and going off into abuses and alcohol and maybe drugs. He went off and tried to plant gardens and he built bigger barns and he had more possessions than anyone. He tried everything that this world had to offer from this perspective. And he said, it's all vain, it's all empty, nothing meets that need. So now keep that in mind with James. And as you remember, that series of tests that we've been talking about, the living, saving faith that's showing itself, and given all of those ser series of tests, here's the test of wisdom that saving faith that's regenerated, that new man it makes a difference in how we respond in trials, that saving faith is going to be seen in how we res respond to temptations, that solicitation to do evil, and then true faith, genuine living faith, is how a person is going to respond to the Word of God in chapter 2, how we respond to needy people, the end of chapter 2, it's going to be shown in our righteous works. And here in the first half of chapter 3, saving living faith is revealed by the use of what member? The tongue. <laughs> Remember, we talked about it so much. So trials, temptation, the word, the needy, righteous deeds, the tongue, all of these are tests, tests of our living faith. And now we have the test of wisdom. And if a person genuinely possesses this living faith, it's going to show the wisdom of God. People are going to see it. They're just going to say, that person is wise. In fact, that kind of wisdom is going to be made manifest only in your life. And one's relationship to God is revealed by the kind of wisdom that you live out. So James tells us there's a false wisdom, verses 14 through 16, and true wisdom, 17 and 18. Makes the very clear the contrast. False wisdom is what? Earthly, sensual, that is, it's unspiritual, it is sensual, it is that which appeals to the flesh. It's where we, man has gone overboard. How many times have we seen people that have just gone overboard? Not just in a sexual sense, but maybe in food. He want food to meet that, and that craving something that's in our life, or maybe in the uh, going overboard in beauty. So many people want to be beautiful. So they go to the plastic surgeon and say, you know what, I don't like my ear. I don't like my nose. I want to be thinner. Why, they've gone over the top, you see. That's all earthly. That's all just sensual. That's what he's talking about here. They've gone way over the top. How about kids? Kids going over the top. i got to have this toy. I want to have just this type of thing. And for us guys, I want to have this car. Boy, I'll just be happy if I get a Corvette, if I drive my Porsche, or whatever it might be that we go over the top. 
and saying, well, you know what, I can't be satisfied with anything else. That's what's earthly. That's what's natural. And what does he say? It's demonic. Divine wisdom, wisdom which is from above, is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's reasonable, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's unwavering, it's without hypocrisy, and it's producing righteousness and peace, according to verse 18, where the other causes confusion, disorder, instability. We're already living in an unstable world. Unstable world, excuse me. And yet... All of that is from the earthly, from the earthly perspective. So then in verse 13, he's asking that question for self-examination. What kind of wisdom do you have? You say you're wise. You say you're understanding. So now let's look at you. Boy, I, I just wonder how James has pointed to us so much. He's pointed to me. I've had to really look at my life. That's the point. Who really possesses the wisdom of God? Who is wise and understanding? We can't make a big distinction in those words, wise and understanding, but there is basically, because some, to some degree, they're synonyms for emphasis, wise and understanding. But there is a little difference in the shade of meanings. And this, by the way, is the only time in the New Testament that these two words appear together. They do appear in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Deuteronomy 1 and 13 and 4, 9, Hosea 14, he talks about wisdom and understanding. So from the Old Testament, all of the God's children, and particularly these verses in Deuteronomy, it related to judges. So that judges who had to make decisions were to have wisdom and understanding. So the simple distinction is that wisdom relates to the practical application of principles. And understanding relates to the understanding of those principles or knowledge of the principles. Do you get that little subtle difference? So in one, we have the application of the principles, and the other is the understanding of the knowledge of them. So we've got to understand them. So one would have more impact on the mind, while the other would have more impact on the conduct. Basically, what they have to do with the same thing, you can't be wise if you don't understand, and you really can't understand if you're not wise. Does it make sense? <laughs> so remember, James started this chapter dealing with teachers. Don't many of you become teachers? And I read some that said, this only deals with wisdom for teachers. But then the problem is, then he goes into the tongue. And everybody who has a tongue now is involved. <laughs> Everyone who's got a tongue, now he's including all of us. So maybe it was only for preachers, teachers at first, but now everybody with a tongue, we're all wrapped up into this, and we're all being called to be wise. So he's left that long ago, that general intent. It's for you and for me that we look at these. Now, we live in a world where there's no one that walks around saying, I am a fool, listen to me, I am foolish. I do not know of any self-confessed fool, do you? Somebody who just thinks, you know what, it seems like in our world, everyone is an expert. If you talk to anyone, they'll give you their opinion, and everyone knows all the answers. We can editorialize on all kinds of things. 
We live in a sea of opinions. You get on some social media and you ask a question and you'll get so many answers. And sometimes then they start to fight back and forth. Oh, wait a minute. There are times that maybe the media, well, let's ask a doctor. Let's ask the psychiatrist. Let's ask this one or that one because their opinions are like apples of gold. This is just somebody we really want to listen to. They must really know. But then you get one expert that says this and you get one expert that says that. I want to come back to what does the Word of God say. I want to come back to see what is it exactly that's going to give me the insight that I need to know my human nature. So for the most part, we live in the sea of opinion, self-opinion, all kinds of answers. But James is saying, among you all who are claiming to be wise and understanding, who is really wise and who really has understanding? Really, that's what he's asking. That's the issue. So the word understanding, of course, in the Greek, it's used here of that professional, that highly skilled person and able to do something. And wisdom, as I said, Sophia is more in general, and it's the ability to apply the knowledge in the matter of living. Now, to the Hebrews... This was a matter for practical living with skill and understanding. They wanted wisdom to help them live out their faith, to help them live out on a day-by-day -day basis. So he, who among you really has practical skill? That's what James is asking. Who among you is really a living professional? Who among you is really a specialist in the matter of living? And if any of you claim that, then let's see your life. Let's see the product. Let's see if you have real knowledge. Who has real understanding? Who has real skill? Who has real wisdom? Show it in your life. Divine wisdom that is placed in the heart of a, of a person produces a changed life. Have you known someone in your life that just was able to say the right thing at the right time? Scriptures say that like apples of gold, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. So James says, let him be shown by his good conduct. Let him show it. That is something in the Greek called an aorist imperative. What does that mean? It means it's a command. Show it. Prove it. Let's see it. Don't say you're wise. Prove it. We want to see wisdom in your life. It's kind of like what he said back in chapter 2, 14 through 20, where he says, faith without works is dead. If you're going around claiming faith, let me see it in your works. Let me see it. Verse 18 of chapter 2 says, if you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. So you can't show faith without works, as we saw. So he's saying again here, are you saying you're wise? Then show it, demonstrate it. We want to understand. We want to see somebody who has some skill of living so that we know what to do ourselves. Well, basically, he's saying that we're going to know that in three ways. Number one, generally, he says, like verse 13, by his good behavior. That's the general statement, by his good conduct. The word is translated as lifestyle. It could translate it behavior, and it could translate it as an activity, a movement, an action. And then the word good, it means lovely, beautiful, winsome, attractive, noble, excellent, something like that. The very common New Testament word. 
So first of all, he says, you claim you have divine wisdom. You claim to have wisdom of God. You claim to have a living faith. So first of all, generally show it by your good behavior and your excellent lifestyle and your attractive actions. That's the general sense. And then if you have the wisdom of God, it's going to come out in the second way. Specifically, let him show it demonstrated by his good behavior, his good works. Now he goes to the very general, to the specific. He identifies that which that individual is going to do, the acts, the deeds, what's going to happen. Each act is consistent with the whole life. Everything we do is consistent with the word of God. So James says, if you claim to have wisdom of God, it's going to show in the totality of your life. It'll show in the smallest parts of your life. And then thirdly, we can say that you've got to demonstrate that wisdom of God, not only generally, not only specifically, but in our attitudes. This is what's tough, that we always have that attitude of Christ. Because at the end of verse 13, he says, all this will be done in the meekness of wisdom. True wisdom has meekness. Most people I've met who say they're wise are pretty arrogant. Have you ever seen somebody who seems to be that way? As a matter of fact, one of the terms of the, of the ungodly from verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, that was an interesting Greek word that means that someone who was entering politics for selfish reasons. They wanted to achieve their own agenda at, the, at any cost. That was the idea of being self-seeking. They were entering in, trying to get their own way. Now we have just the opposite in the Word of God and in our lives. True wisdom is not arrogant. But what James is saying is, if you have wisdom of God, it's far from arrogant you'll be meek. So this wisdom is meekness. It's a beautiful thought. It isn't arrogant at all. But that's what he says in verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. If it's that stuff that's there, you don't have the wisdom of God. And James knows very well how to be angry, arrogant, how to have that divisive spirit and attitude that's often demonstrated by Sometimes professing Christians that say that they're wise, they'll think they have all of the answers, but such an attitude really reveals not wisdom at all, not the wisdom of God, because the wisdom of God has an attitude of meekness. I'm thinking about James as well. You know what? Some while back we studied about James and about Jesus and his mother. Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And what does the scripture say but that his mother and brothers went to get him? They went to pull him out. James was right there. And James is thinking, our brother is crazy. Of course, it's half-brother. God is Jesus' father. Joseph is James' father. So his half-brother, they're thinking he's gone nuts. We've got to take him away. We've got to pull him out, snatch him out, because I, what is he doing? You see, they thought they had the right answer. They thought they knew what was best. They thought they had wisdom. We know how to take care of this one. And how wrong were they? 
Because what Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. All of that meek, it's, the, it's a wonderful Greek word. It's praus. It's a beautiful word. It's the opposite of self-promotion. It's the opposite of self-seeking. It's the opposite of self-ambition. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's a lovely character. It's a beautiful trait, meekness. It belonged to our Lord. In the Beatitudes, and you know James, and we're going to see that if we get to go through much more of James, we're going to see how often James goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. I think James, this is my opinion, James was there, he heard Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he heard when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth coming in his kingdom. We come in with meekness. So in James chapter 1 and 21, he says that we put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in meekness, receiving the implanted word. It's that fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit involves meekness. It is a trait for us as a children of God. And in classical Greek, the word praus that we get as meekness is often used to things that remain gentle in reference to things like a voice, a gentle voice. Now, I was working Friday out, and it was pretty warm. I don't know. It was only 99 something. And I'm working on the table saw, and this beautiful, gentle breeze just came. And it was so, how nice. And it made me think of this very sermon, the meekness that's just gentle. It wasn't imposing. It wasn't a, a whirlwind. It wasn't knock you down. Didn't blow dust up in your face or anything. It was just that which on a warm day was kind of soothing. That's the idea of the Greek. The Greek said that it means power under control, a freedom from malice or bitterness or anger, self-seeking. It's freedom from any desire for revenge. One of the commentators, William Barclay, said, it's not spineless gentleness. It's not sentimental fondness. It's not passive quietism. It is strengthening by the word of God under control. Numbers chapter 12 in verse 3 talks about Moses. Moses was the meekest man on the earth, the scripture says. But Moses was a man who could act with decision. When he came down off of the mount, just been with the Lord for all that time, and he walks down and hears the children of Israel that have seen the mighty works of God and all of the plagues in Egypt. He divided the waters. He's been providing for them, giving them manna, giving them fresh water. And they're worshiping a golden calf. You think Moses got mad? Yes, he was angry. And yet, how is it that he was so angry that he chewed, he ground up that thing and made him drink it? <laughs> you're going to drink it. You love that calf so much, you're going to drink it. We'll give it to you. I don't know what drinking gold was going to do to you, but I don't think it's good. <laughs> I don't think that's what you want to be doing on a regular basis. So you might say, well, Moses, how was he so meek? Well, he was self not self-seeking. He was not self-serving. He was not self-justifying, self-defending. Everything was in reverence to God. 
You see that? So the character of meekness means that it's under control. And for the believer, it means that we're under the control of God. That's what it means. It's how we treat others. How we understand. So James says, you think you're wise, do you? You think you have all the answers? Let me look at your life. Let me see the general pattern of your life. Let me see how you relate in your work, how you relate in the will of God, how you relate to others. Are the specific acts relevant to your work, to the will of God? Is that attitude one that carries humility, gentleness, meekness, mildness, graciousness? There's an old commentary, 1871, Robert Johnson said, I do not know that at any point the opposition between the spirit of the world and the spirit of Christ is more marked or more obviously diametrical than with regard to this feature of character. And he's referring to meekness. Further, he said, that the meek should inherit the earth, those who bear wrongs, and exemplify that love seeks not her own to a world which believes in high-handedness, self-assertion, and pushing the weakness to the wall. A statement like this is of the Lord from heaven cannot but appear an utter paradox. The man of the world desires to be counted anything but meek and poor in spirit and would deem such a, descrip a description of him equivalent to the charge of unmanliness. He wrote that over 140 years ago. And so understand in all of those, we might recognize sometimes it's easy to become self-serving. It's easy to become arrogant. It's easy to become conceited. But the spirit of Christ is that which will lead us to meekness, humbleness, not retaliatory. So James shows us the test of living, the saving faith, it's not just your general conduct, it's the specific deeds, it's your attitude, it's a living faith. So if it's a true faith, it's going to make a difference in our life day by day. You see people running around all over saying, oh, I know this or I know that. Show me. That's what James is telling us. Where did James get all this? What was the foundation? He doesn't really describe much about wisdom, but he got it from the Old Testament. After all, he's a Jew. Remember in verse 1, he's writing to the Jews, and I assume that he's really going back like to the Word. By the way, very quickly, you know the Word in Luke eleven forty nine 49 is called the wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit in Isaiah eleven two 2 is called the spirit of wisdom. So we have the spirit of wisdom and with spirit of the word. Therefore, when we apply that in our life, we are wise. And now the Apostle Paul says, Christ is made unto us wisdom. Beautiful statement. Christ is made unto us wisdom. He becomes wisdom to us. What a tremendous truth. Because we possess Christ, Paul said to the Colossians, in whom dwells all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, possess the very wisdom of God. The Bible doesn't put any premium on wisdom. It's not just a head knowledge. Nothing is known, truly known. Nothing is understood or truly understood until it reshapes our lives. For that reason, it's living out a personal relationship with Christ. We need this daily because life and all of the problems are there. The trials are there to move us to wisdom. 
is molding us. He's making us to living out that personal relationship with God because he's doing something in us. Do you have that wisdom? You know, God offers that wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ is made unto us wisdom. So when you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the wisdom of God. The wisdom that fears God. The wisdom that hates evil. The wisdom that's blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. It far surpasses anything this world could ever offer. I trust that you want that wisdom. You know, there's a, a beautiful song one of the songwriters said, Be thou my vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou art my best thought by day and by night. Waking or sleeping, thy present is light. Oh, how beautiful. And then he goes on. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou art my great father, and I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. We're going to close out with just that thought. Be thou my vision. Be my wisdom, Lord. Be what only you can be. James has just gone through and contrasted for us. This is the way of the world. This is the way of God. And he says, look at your own life. He wants us to examine. How am I? How do I? If you're watching or listening, you're here and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, that's why you do not have godly wisdom because Christ is wisdom. He's the wisdom of God. We want you to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today. But then as a child of God, do we say, Lord, be my wisdom. Let me speak your truths. Let me be what you want me to be. Bringing all of that self under control and this tongue that gets us into so much trouble. This tongue is controlled by the wisdom of God. What man can't do, God can do. When you say, I try so hard, allow God to do it. Allow him to have his work and his way. Said all of that in that simple way. Then let him make you and mold you so that we're different. So that people look at you and say, they're wise. There's something very wise about that person because you're able to apply the truth of God's word on a day-by-day -day basis. Boy, James nails us to the, to the post, doesn't he? He holds us accountable. You say you're wise, prove it. Live it. Let's see it. Let's see it in your attitudes. Let's see it in your life. Let's see it in the little things and the big things. That's what he's calling us. Thank you for joining us today and we hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you have been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions or perhaps you have questions of a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website or can reach us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Just as he said